True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The only noise in the quiet corporate office block is the occasional hum of a photocopier and the distant buzz of telephone conversation as people conduct their business as they would on any other day. On that day, though, the silence is suddenly punctuated by angry voices coming from the boardroom, and then three gunshots, followed by a fourth. The gunshots will herald the end of two lives, and the beginning of a process that will destroy thousands more, in many cases without any hope of recovery. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 101, A Pyramid of Death. This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. For many of us, the festive season means catching up with friends and family, and it's often a time when our social calendar is bursting at the seams. If you're anything like me at the end of the holidays, I often have no clue how I managed to consume as much food as I did, and it really feels like every get-together is an enormous feast. Significantly changing your eating habits can wreak havoc on your digestive system, and you certainly don't want to go into the new year with tummy troubles. Just Wellness's blend of olive leaf extract and devil's claw or aloe ferox are just what you need to prep your digestive system and boost your overall wellness this festive season. The devil's claw blend is great for aiding the prevention and symptom easing of heartburn and inflammation, as well as being an alternative treatment for gout, while the aloe ferox blend will help to cleanse your colon and ensure that festive feasts don't stay with you longer than necessary. You can get free delivery of any of the fabulous Just Wellness blends by ordering two products on their website, justwellness.co.za. A huge thank you to Just Wellness for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's case, I'd like to thank our new Patreon and PayPal supporters who have contributed to the show since I released the last episode. A huge thank you goes out to Hannah Smith, Mary Kay Bond, Mokhari Relela, Les, Lufuno Nemutamvuni, Laura Joy Lockery, Talia Galasco, Amy Skoltz, Tilisetso Rabaloa, and Michelle Bossman for your support on Patreon as well as Lorinda Human, Henry Kastienkamp, and Claire Caldwell for your support on PayPal. Today's episode focuses on a few different crimes. There's a murder-suicide, but intermingled in that is also what appears to have been an enormous Ponzi scheme. Perhaps one of the largest South Africa's ever seen. We often see financial crimes as less devastating and traumatic than violent crimes, and I think this case perfectly shows how there's often no line between the two, and fraudulent activity, greed and deceit can so quickly and seamlessly blend into a violent act with ramifications that continue on for many people almost without end. My sources for today's case include legal judgments around the financial crimes in this case, media articles, and an episode of Heiskenoord Vare Levens Dramas. So let's get into episode 101, A Pyramid of Death. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. We don't have a lot of information about the past of the alleged perpetrator in this case, Herman Pretorius, 
but we do know that in the 90s he was a police officer with the SAPS, and that had seemingly been his entire career path up until the late 90s. Hermann, his wife Susan Anna, and their two sons were living in a caravan park in Belleville, Cape Town in 2000. They were definitely living in a lower income bracket and barely keeping food on the table. And then one of the many mysteries of this case seemed to happen overnight. Hermann Pretorius took up a new trade, investments, and despite him seemingly having no experience to speak of in the field, his star rose quickly, and he was soon hugely successful. Hammond did seem to have a few talents in his skill set that must have contributed to his success in this new field. He was known to be extremely charming, and seemed to know exactly what people needed to hear in order to feel comfortable, and for almost complete strangers to extend trust, and ultimately their money to him. He was also a Cape Townian by birth, and had built up many friendships and contacts, especially in some of the smaller agricultural towns in the Western Cape. Hermann was also an avid churchgoer, and this undoubtedly helped to build his network, as well as the level of trust many of the very religious people in the small Western Cape towns had in him. Hermann could quote the Bible as though it were his mother tongue, and it was not uncommon for him to arrive at meetings with new clients with a Bible under his arm, which he didn't hesitate to whip out to allay the concerns of potential investors. Now, up until this point in our description, Hermann could be any other smart businessman. I come from the world of sales, and part of how salespeople are trained is in gaining trust with potential clients. There's really nothing insidious about that. It's just the way business works. As long as you're not lying or misrepresenting your product or service in order to gain that trust, or to get the client's business, all's fair in love and sales, right? The difference between Hermann Pretorius and any other savvy and suave businessman would only become apparent much later. And really... He seemed to do a pretty good job of keeping everyone convinced of his honesty and reliability, at least for much longer than many others who've attempted the same sorts of schemes that Hermann was dealing in. In the early 2000s, Hermann Pretorius went into business with Julian Williams. Williams had been involved in the investment arena for many years, and the two men were similar ages, both were married with two children. The pair started an investment business they called Abanti. It's difficult to say exactly when Hermann Pretorius began to realize he could make far more money if, if he slid slightly over to the dark side, and we'll never really know if that happened when he was still in business with Julian Williams, but he definitely carried over many of the investors he'd gained while working with Julian into his new venture. When Julian decided in 2008 to part ways with Hermann and open his own investment firm, Basilius. Even today, after all is said and done, there are two versions about how closely tied Hermann and Julian remained after this apparent split of their business dealings. It's clear that the two men retained one business connection, and that was in a business called SA Super Alloys. The company was officially headed up by Julian Williams, as well as his partner, James Mueller, and Hermann had started selling preference shares in the company as a product to his own investors. Now, I will admit I'm no financial guru, and I had to do quite a bit of research to understand a lot of the terms I came across around this case. I'll explain the terms to you as I mention them, even though you may well know what they are, because I'm sure there'll be at least a few listeners that don't. Preferential shares in a company are shares that are sold to an exclusive group of investors, with the caveat 
that should the company go bankrupt, the preferential shareholders will be entitled to have their investment paid back to them from company assets before any other shareholder is paid. The deal that Hanman was offering his investors was apparently a three-year fixed deal in which they would earn a dividend of 20% on their investment. In the first year that he was selling SA's super alloy shares, he was able to pay out this pretty incredible dividend to his investors. But in the second year, the dividend dropped to 15%. Investors would of course still be very happy with this, as it's a far higher payout than one would usually expect on such an investment. But it would be the third year of this specific investment, 2011, that would really sour relations between Hermann and Julian. Because in 2011, Julian told Hermann that there would be no dividends to pay out to his investors on the SA Super Alloy shares. Not a single cent. This left Hermann with 180 million rand worth of unanswered questions from his investors. Now, it may seem like this predicament was something that Julian Williams was responsible for, and that Hermann was the innocent party who was now being made to look bad in front of a large group of people, some of whom had been investing with him since the 90s. That is certainly how it appears on the surface. But there was much more going on behind the scenes. And for Hermann Petrurius, the SA Super Alloys saga was just the cherry on a fast, souring cake. SA Super Alloys was an unlisted company. In other words, it was not yet listed on a stock exchange. And this was not the only unlisted company for which Hanma was selling shares. In fact, shares in unlisted companies were his most sold product. And that was because he somehow managed to offer extremely generous dividends to all his investors on these share purchases. In fact, the 20% he'd offered on the SA Super Alloys shares was actually quite low in comparison to what some of his investors were promised by him, which averaged at 30%. If you've listened to my episode on the Cryon scheme in Funderbale Park, you'll remember that such a high dividend on an investment is a huge red flag. Most solid legitimate investments cannot offer anything higher than the inflation rate. Inflation in 2010 was 3.5%. But Hermann had been successfully paying out the incredible dividends he'd promised his investors for several years. This, of course, resulted in friends and family members of those happy investors also wanting to invest their money with Hermann. By 2011, the ex-police officer-turned-investment guru was flying high. He had two very lavish homes, one worth 26 million rand in Valchemut, and the other a holiday home in Hermanus, also worth multiple millions of rands. And that home was featured in the House and Home magazine due to its special architecture and impeccable furnishings. Hermann spared no expense in furnishing his homes, with a single table in the Hermanus home being valued at 49,000 rand. He owned various cars, including an Aston Martin and a Ferrari, and gave his wife a ring valued at 400,000 rand as an anniversary gift. His sons were studying at university, and they too wanted for nothing. Life was good, at least on the surface. Besides the interest percentage red flag when it comes to choosing investments, the overriding principle that really should guide most people in considering any opportunity is, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And it would be this saying that prompted a few different people to start looking a little deeper into Hammond Pretorius and his investments. In May 2011, the Financial Services Board, or FSB, 
received information about Hermann Pretorius and his investment business. At the time, the FSB was the government's financial regulatory agency, which was responsible for non-banking financial services. Those providing financial services had to register with the FSB, but Hermann Pretorius never had. According to him, the service he was offering did not fall under the auspices of the FSB, and when the agency received this tip, this is what they set about trying to determine. The information the FSB was given was that Hermann was selling shares in unlisted companies and that he was making representations to community members in order to get them to invest with him. The FSB approached Hermann at this time and after receiving information from him and conducting their own investigations, they determined that nothing he was doing fell under the auspices of their agency to govern. In a later statement, the FSB would also say that they had not picked up any criminal activity in Hermann's business activities, and if anything, the work he was doing would fall under the Companies Act, which the FSB was not mandated to enforce. Now, I tend to think that although this investigation probably served the purposes of the FSB, it did little to actually determine whether any criminal activity was actually being undertaken. And in all fairness, this was not really the mandate of their investigation. But I do think it was a missed opportunity. And this is a problem I've seen with many of these regulatory agencies. They have a mandate, but it's very narrow. And it seems that many things slip through the cracks because these agencies are not allowed, or do not want, to think outside the box. One example I've seen of this is the HPCSA, the Health Professionals Council of South Africa. Their mandate is to regulate health professionals registered with the council and ensure that they are practicing in an ethical manner that does not harm the public or the reputation of the profession. But the guidelines they work to are so specific that there is really very little room for broader thinking or a wider definition of harm to the public. In one instance, I approached the council about a dentist who served time for sex crimes against children, and upon his release on parole, once again took up his post as a dentist in a community role in which he has access to children in a position of authority. When I took this up with the HPCSA, they informed me that because the crimes he was found guilty of did not relate to his work as a dentist, the children he was convicted of sexually assaulting were not his patients at the time of the crimes, they did not have the authority to stop him from working as a dentist. If he'd been found guilty of raping his patients, that may have been a different story, but as it stood, the HPCSA could and would do nothing to prevent him from having access to child patients. I asked, considering their mandate to uphold the ethics of the medical profession, if they thought it ethical that a medical professional rape children, regardless of whether those children were his patients or not, and their answer was that they could not get involved in the private lives of their members unless the matter directly impacted their work as a medical professional. Forgive my segue here, but I do have two points to make with it. The first is, do not assume that the medical professional you entrust your or your children's bodies to are not convicted sex offenders. And the second point is that regulatory bodies often have a lot of snarl and almost no teeth. And the teeth they do have will chomp down on only the bits they find enticing, and wholly navigate around these suspicious bits that really should be looked at by someone. And yes, they should be alerting the relevant authorities if they come across cause for concern. 
but more often than not, they won't. And this, it seems, is precisely how the gaping black hole in Hermann Pretorius's activities was missed. The FSB did investigate in May 2011, but they seemingly only investigated the parts that were required of them. And if they did come across anything they found suspicious, but not directly linked to their mandates, it doesn't appear the authorities were notified. At least, not immediately. And when the true nature of what was happening did come to light, it was far too late. Because the truth was that although the FSB did not find anything of concern from the perspective of their mandates and guidelines, Hamann Pretorius's investments were far from above board. Although he would never stand in court to face any charges, there is more than enough evidence to show that, at best, his business was shady, and at worst, it was one of the biggest Ponzi schemes South Africa has ever seen. When I covered the Cryon Ponzi scheme in episode 54, The Angel of Funderbale Park, I explained that although there is a difference between a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme, the words are often used interchangeably in the media and the public's description of such schemes. The term Ponzi scheme was coined in 1919 when an Italian immigrant to the US, Charles Ponzi, devised a scheme in which he persuaded almost 11,000 residents from Boston to invest approximately $20 million with him. He promised exceptionally high return rates within a short period of time by purchasing international reply coupons from other countries and then redeeming them in the US for postage stamps. Initially, he was able to pay these exorbitant returns to initial investors by simply drawing from the capital investments received from the new investors. However, as the scheme was not based on any viable underlying economic enterprise, it eventually collapsed when no more investors could be persuaded to make further investments. Through the years, a multitude of these types of schemes have surfaced across the world, and they are now referred to as Ponzi schemes. Ponzi schemes require that investors make an initial investment to join, while a pyramid scheme often only asks for a purchase of a product, which is either intended for use by you or resale. The key with pyramid schemes, though, is that victims are required to recruit more people to the scheme, and this is how they earn the vast majority of whatever incentive they've been promised. With Ponzi schemes, the buy-in is often financial in nature, and the incentive is an amount of interest they've been promised on their investment. Ponzi scheme participants are not required to recruit new participants in order to earn the interest they've been promised. To be fair, there is often crossover between the elements of a pyramid scheme and a Ponzi scheme, and this happened in, in Hermann Pretorius's case too. Ponzi schemes, just like legitimate businesses, rely on word of mouth and happy customers to spread the word. So often, unintentionally, victims of these schemes are participating in bringing more people into the scheme, not necessarily in a pyramid fashion though, because those new investors are not really under them in a pyramid sense. It would be very clear though, that Hermann Pretorius was using new investors' money to pay older investors' dividends. And as with all Ponzi schemes, this can never go on forever. In 2011, when the FSB initially investigated Hermann's business, it seems that there were only distant rumblings of discontent from a few of his investors. We know at least one person was concerned enough at that time to have made a report to the FSB that resulted in the initial investigation. But as 2012 rolled in, things were about to get far worse, and Hermann Pretorius's days as one of the most successful investment businessmen in South Africa were numbered. It's often not just one straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back. 
but rather a culmination of years of back-breaking work that creates weak spots, and then, one day, one thing is just the final breaking point. Hamon Pretorius had been juggling many balls for a long time, and in 2012, he dropped several. The FSB began to receive complaints about his business dealings again, and this time, there were several. They realised that they would have no choice but to once again launch an investigation into Hamon Pretorius, and this time they may have to dig a little deeper and push far harder. When these complaints started to come through, Julius Corbett, a journalist for MoneyWeb, an online financial publication, caught wind of the impending investigation into Hermann Pretorius, and he started doing some digging of his own. In June 2012, Corbett published an article which revealed that Pretorius was in the process of being investigated. The journalist laid out some of the evidence against the man, and it would later be revealed that he also got in touch with Julian Williams, and he'd been discussing the investigation with him. Hammond's investors had already started talking among themselves when they heard through the grapevine that he was being investigated again, but Corbett's article really set the cat among the pigeons, and within days, Hamon Pretorius started receiving more withdrawal requests than he could handle. While many of his older investors stood by him, many others became concerned and wanted their investments back. Hanman was clearly panicking, but outwardly, most said he gave off the impression that he was completely unconcerned. He spent his time visiting investors who'd expressed concerns and turned on the charm, always with his Bible under his arm, to point out where he felt relevant biblical references that indicated the importance of his investors sticking by him and not withdrawing their investments. He was able to ward off quite a few withdrawals, but the flow of money out of his business continued, and soon another crisis presented itself. The dividends that the preferential shareholders in the SA Super Alloys shares had been expecting came due. They'd had their promised 20% dividend in the first year, accepted 15% in the second year, but now the pay dates had come and gone, and Hermann owed the investors close to 180 million rand in dividends, which Julian Williams had informed him was not going to be coming that year. It seems that Hermann had come up with a plan to keep the investors happy, which was never really fully explained, but it didn't seem to be completely on the up and up. Some sources allege that Hermann wanted Julian to use money from other funds to pay the SA Super Alloys investors, but Julian felt that this was unethical and leaning toward fraudulence, and he refused to do so. So in the months of June and July, Hermann Pretorius was dealing with multiple withdrawal requests, other investors questioning his ethics, an impending investigation by the FSB, and demands from the SA Super Alloy investors for their 180 million rand in dividends. On the morning of the 26th of July 2012, Hermann Pretorius got dressed and drove to his office in Tiger Valley. He had an 8am appointment booked with investigators from the FSB. They wanted to ask him a few questions and get copies of documents they needed. The investigators arrived on time, and Hermann sat with them in the boardroom for most of that morning. Then, around 10am, Hermann told investigators he was going to use the toilet. He never returned. Instead, Hermann Pretorius got into his car and drove to Camps Bay. There, he apparently visited with a family member for a few minutes, before heading to the Icon Building in Cape Town CBD. The Icon Building was home to the offices of Julian Williams's company, 
Basilius. Hermann arrived there shortly before noon, and a receptionist showed him through to the boardroom where Julian joined them. We will never know exactly what happened in that boardroom that day, but we do know what the outcome of that meeting was. It's very likely that Hermann was there to make one last attempt at getting Julian to agree to pay the SA Super Alloys investors from alternate fund sources, and it's likely Julian once again refused. Four gunshots rung out in the boardroom a little while after Hermann had arrived. Julian Williams was shot three times and died on the scene. Hermann Pretorius sustained a single gunshot wound to the head and was still breathing but not conscious when horrified staff members opened the boardroom door to a bloodbath. Despite the best efforts of paramedics who attended the scene, Hermann Pretorius passed away at the hospital shortly afterwards. Initial reports around the shooting framed it as an incident where the gunman was unknown, but shortly afterwards reports started to leak information that it was believed to be a murder-suicide. The murder weapon had been found in the boardroom with the two men. It was close to Hermann's body. The gunshot wounds to Julian Williams could not have been self-inflicted, and Hermann Pretorius's hands tested positive for gunshot residue. His single gunshot wound to the head was almost certainly self-inflicted. The evidence was clear. Hermann Pretorius had fired three shots into his long-time acquaintance and one-time business partner, Julian Williams, and then a single shot into his own head, ending his life. To son Anna Pretorius and her two sons would undoubtedly have been devastated when they received the news of Hermann's passing, as would Julian's family have been. But for the Pretoriuses, and many more families across South Africa, this would just be the very beginning of a long and drawn-out series of shocks and moments of horror. Within hours of the news of Hermann Pretorius's death hitting the headlines, investors began calling. They were terrified about what Hermann's death might mean for their investments. When it became clear that he had murdered Julian Williams and taken his own life, the level of concern only increased. What exactly was it that Hermann Pretorius had been so desperate to escape from? And why would he have seen fit to take the life of another at the same time? Murder-suicide are a very specific subset of crime and often present in a very specific way. Most murder-suicide perpetrators are male, and in almost all cases, there is a romantic or familial connection between the perpetrator and the victims. Hammond's actions on the 26th of July were therefore completely out of the ordinary when it comes to this kind of crime. He did know Julian very well, but according to later reports, they'd barely had any interaction in the years before the murder, besides the SA Super Alloys connection. But it seemed that many people believed there was a far more extensive business connection between the two men, because in the days after the murder-suicide, there was a lot of victim-blaming aimed at Julian Williams. Many people who remained supportive of Hermann Pretorius claimed that he had clearly been forced into a corner by manipulative people, the implication being that Julian Williams was one of those people that had driven Hermann to commit the crime he did. After the article had been published on MoneyWeb, Julian Williams had told journalist Julius Corbett that a lot of anger had been directed toward him in the wake of the allegations against Pretorius. He said, quote, I'm stunned that abuse is being directed at me from investors in the Bunty. I can only presume Pretorius's Abanti investments refer to the RVAF, but I must confess I don't have a knowledge of what else Pretorius is promoting. End quote. 
The RVAF that Williams refers to here is the Relative Value Arbitrage Fund, which is what Hermann had called the fund into which investors placed their money. He would then use that fund to invest in various shares and other investments, and he would provide each investor with a monthly statement that detailed the investments he'd made on their behalf. These statements were one of the red flags that some people had pointed out in Hermann's dealings. The statements were on plain paper, and provided little detail about the actual movements of the stocks Hermann claimed to be investing in. It was really quite difficult for his investors to even know from these simplistic references what they actually had their money in. In speaking to Corbett before his death, Williams would also provide another piece of the puzzle, perhaps unknowingly, when he mentioned that many of the people directing their anger at him about the investigation into Pretorius were brokers that Pretorius had used to gain more investors. It would emerge that Hermann Pretorius had quite a wide circle of investment brokers across the country who were actively promoting his investments to their clients. The reason these brokers seemed so gung-ho in their support of the man was that they, like the investors, were receiving extraordinarily large payouts. Investment brokers earn commissions on the investments that clients make when they refer them to firms like Hermann's. On the whole, brokers should be unbiased, or at the very least, biased toward their clients' best interests. And in all fairness, the brokers referring clients to Hermann did seem to be under the impression that they were referring them to a 20% interest investment. But I can't help but think that the far higher commission rate that Hermann offered also had to have played into it. Later on, we'll discuss the, the possible complicity of these brokers and how they may have been held to account. But at least according to Williams before his death, they were a big part of the crowd who were directing blame at him and protecting Hermann Pretorius. Unfortunately, Pretorius's employees had no answers for his investors in the days after his death, and the FSB investigation ramped up, and they were soon joined by the SAPS and the Hawks. It would not be long until the terrible truth began to present itself, though. Within a week of Hermann Pretorius's death, Mornay Stradom, an investor and also Pretorius's lawyer, applied for an order of sequestration from the Western Cape High Court for Hermann Pretorius's estate, which included Abanti and, in turn, all businesses related to the man. An order of sequestration will be issued for an estate if evidence is presented to prove that the debts owed by the estate are larger than the capital or assets available to pay those debts. Essentially, investors would hear Hermann Pretorius and all of his businesses were bankrupt when he died. The bank accounts that Hermann ran his business from, which received all his investors' money and also paid out their dividends, had a balance of just 2.5 million rand at the time of his death. And while most of us would be pretty happy with that balance, Pretorius was operating on a different level. He owed just one group of investors 180 million rand. So 2.5 million rand was not even a drop in that ocean. Hammond's funeral was a strange event. Although most attendees came to mourn him, there was also a group of people who attended in the hopes that they'd get some answers about their investments. The events also showed just how deeply interwoven Hermann's personal and business lives had been. His funeral appeared to have been crafted to get across the message that there was no money left in his estate to pay back investors. Two different pastors led the funeral. One addressed the ordinary business of such an event, 
memories of the deceased, condolences to his family and the like. The other very clearly addressed the investors present through thinly veiled comments about the mistakes Hermann Pretorius had made. The pastor who led this portion of the ceremony was not only a long-time friend of Pretorius's, but also an investor. He shocked the hall of people when he told them that Hermann had confessed to him a few years before that, quote, one day I'm going to hurt a lot of people, end quote. The message sent out that day was clear. If you have invested money with Hermann Pretorius, you can consider it lost. For many of the investors, though, it was not that simple. Hermann had not just focused on high-flying business people with disposable income. In fact, that profile of person made up the smallest part of his client portfolio. For the most part, his investors were farmers, retired doctors and the like. Men and women living predominantly in small Western Cape towns who'd been drawn in by the trust that others had in Pretorius, and of course, his charm, charisma, and smooth-talking skills drew them in too. Many of the investors had handed over their entire retirement funds to Pretorius. These people had been living off the dividends from their investment with Pretorius, and when the man died and his estate was put under sequestration, their income immediately dried up. It's interesting to note how, even when all the news coverage and talk on the street about Hermann and his investments began to reveal the truth of the situation, so many people still held him in high regard and refused to believe that he'd purposefully been running a Ponzi scheme. Susan Anna Pretorius, Hermann's wife, told journalists and anyone else that asked that she'd had no idea what her husband was doing. She said that she'd played no role in the business and had been a housewife. She had only spent what her husband had given her. Many would refuse to believe that she hadn't known, and perhaps it's possible she'd had her suspicions. But let's face it, thousands of people had not known what Hadman was up to. Many, many people had been fleeced by him. Whether or not Susan Anna had any knowledge of her husband's criminal activities, she and her sons were going through a terrible time. She had not only lost her husband suddenly and in a way that he would now always be remembered as a murderer, but soon she would have nothing at all left from their previous life. When I covered the Cryon scheme, I explained how the legal proceedings against a Ponzi scheme are conducted, and this involves a team of assessors working to systematically trace all the money that came in and went out of the scheme, and also seizing all assets that can be proven to have been purchased with the proceeds of the scheme. The team assigned to unravel the scheme were tasked with bringing back in as much of the money that went out as possible. Then, from that money, certain people would be paid. The first would be the team of assessors. Then, any money owed to the South African Revenue Service would be paid. And any creditors who'd managed to successfully petition for their debts to be paid back to them, which is extremely rare, and usually such creditors will have to write off money owed to them. And finally, what is left will be distributed among those who were victims of the scheme. But there's a strange dichotomy when it comes to Ponzi schemes, because the victims are also seen as complicit in the crime. People who have participated in a Ponzi scheme, although most often unknowingly, and received any interest from that scheme, are seen to have received the proceeds of a criminal organization. As such, the victims of the scheme are required to pay back any interest they received before they will be considered 
to be paid back any of their original investments. This is often a huge shock to victims, who are already reeling from having lost their entire savings, and then assessors start knocking on their door to claim back interest they've received. Considering most of these people were living off the interest on a monthly basis, and using the amounts up monthly, this would be like someone knocking on your door and telling you to pay back the salary you earned for the last three years. Would you be able to do that? No, me neither. Now, I get why this happens from a legal perspective, but from a human perspective, it's just atrocious. One man had been investing with Hammond Pretorius from the late 90s. He was one of the original investors and had received 40,000 rand in interest every quarter for 13 years. He'd been living off this as his income, and now he was being asked to pay it back. Many investors were forced to sell everything they owned to pay back the interest they'd earned in the scheme. One man went from living in a comfortable home in Cape Town and driving a Mercedes-Benz as the spoils of his retirement after a lifetime of work to living with the only family members who could accommodate him in their home and his only income being his state pension of less than a thousand rand per month at the time. Although investors had been told that they should not bank on receiving any of their money back, they were simultaneously told that if anything was available to to pay back to them at the end, it would not be any more than five cents to the rand on what they'd originally invested. The investors who had been brought to Hanuman by brokers, however, were not going to take their losses lying down. In the months after Hamon Pretorius's death, the Ombudsman for Financial Services was inundated with cases related to brokers who had recommended RVAF as an investment. Essentially, the complainants were asking the Ombudsman to find that in recommending RVAF as an investment, the brokers had failed to carry out their duties – which included ensuring that they were recommending only registered investments, and if they did recommend unregistered investments, they should have declared that risk to the investors, which in most cases, they did not. Almost without fail, the ombudsman would find each case in the complainant's favour, and brokers were ordered to pay back part or all of the investments their clients had lost. Unfortunately for many of the investors, this was a hollow victory because upon receiving the order, the brokers would simply declare insolvency as the order outweighed their capability to continue functioning as a viable entity. Many brokers closed their businesses and moved overseas as soon as the first few ombudsman findings came through against their colleagues. They weren't waiting for their clients to figure out that they may have a claim against them. It wasn't just the investors that were wanting to claim against the brokers, though. The curators and assessors of the estate and Ponzi scheme investigation wanted their pound of flesh, too. In the same way as investors' interest earnings were seen as income from a criminal enterprise, so, too, were the commissions earned by the brokers. So, on one end... Their commissions were being claimed back, and on the other end, the investors were claiming back the initial capital. Now, I do have empathy for these brokers, and I feel for them having lost their businesses and likely their livelihoods. But I cannot help but wonder how all of these very experienced people were taken for a ride by Hermann. I can completely understand the investors who were for the most part not financial experts, being conned. But these brokers assessed investments on a daily basis. They knew that RVAF was not registered with the FSB. They understood the risk. And yet, 
perhaps because the commission was so good and things went so well for so long, they found it within themselves to risk their clients' money. Many of the brokers stood up for themselves at the time, saying that RVAF was just one of the many investment opportunities that had been presented to their clients, and that after attending presentations on the various options, their clients had chosen RVAF. The ombudsman said that in their opinion, RVAF should never have been on the cards, and if it was, the risk profile should have been so highlighted that no sane person would put their money in it because it would be no better than going to the casino. As the waves of damage stretched out from the epicenter of Hanman's death, his wife and son struggled to stay afloat. The assessors and curators almost immediately started to seize the two lavish houses and all the contents. There were also the expensive cars and boats and a significant haul of hall of jewellery owned by Susan Anna. Everything was up for grabs, though, because according to Susan Anna, everything had been purchased by her husband. Of course, it would take time to prove exactly what money had purchased which items, and hence what had been the proceeds of crime, but no one could risk these items disappearing in the meantime, so they had to be seized. Susan Anna would hire a lawyer and attempt to stop the large-scale seizure of the homes and everything in them, but her attempts would fail, and within a few months of becoming a widow, she was also homeless. She was instructed to move out of their home in Valchemut. She would be allowed to take one bed and one refrigerator with her, and a few personal items, such as clothing and photographs but everything else was considered the property of the recovery fund until further notice. Susan Anna had spent days with the investigators going over everything she knew and remembered from the years her husband had spent in investments. Although investigators pushed the woman, insisting that she had to know something that could help them, and she could not possibly have believed she was living in this legitimate rags-to-riches story, going from living in a caravan park to owning two multi-million rand homes in such a short space of time. Susan Anna continued to insist she had known nothing about her husband's criminal endeavours. For the most part, investigators may have believed this to be true, but a few things she said and did had them wondering. Remember that 400,000 rand ring that Hermann had purchased for Susan Anna to celebrate their anniversary? Well, investigators wanted to know where the ring was, because they wanted to seize it. Susan Anna claimed she'd lost it when they were on holiday in Hermanus. Investigators asked whether they'd received any money from an insurance claim on the ring, and Susan Anna said they'd never claimed for it. They'd simply accepted that it was lost. The story she told about the ring was complex and detailed, but it would soon be proven that it was a lie. One eagle-eyed investigator spotted Susan Anna wearing the ring in a photograph taken by a journalist at Hanuman's funeral. They confronted the woman, and she admitted that she had lied. She handed the ring over the next day. Although it seems clear that many people were fleeced by Hermann, the investigation would reveal that it was possible that many others were actually complicit in the scheme, and perhaps even after his death had helped to hide funds. The total value of Hermann Pretorius's Ponzi scheme was estimated to be 2.2 billion rand. The investigators were only ever able to track down 300 million rand in assets and payments from that amount. The rest seemed to have disappeared into the ether. There were, of course, claims that Hamann had taken much of the money overseas. Countries like Malta and Mauritius were mentioned, 
and investors and investigators alike travelled to these countries to see what they could find, but no trace was ever found. Those who knew Hamann were well aware that he hadn't had just one bank account, but a few things had disappeared from his office between the time he'd left and when he killed Julian Williams and shot himself and when the police seized his office as part of the investigation. One of the items was a black book that Hamann had allegedly used to record investment account numbers and passwords in. Several computers also disappeared. Investigators questioned everyone that worked with or for Hamann and had access to the office. They also looked into that visit he made to a family member in Camps Bay on his way to the Icon offices on that fateful day, but those items were never recovered. Many investors believed that someone was hiding money and that although Hamann had taken the fall for the Ponzi scheme, he had not been the only one involved and someone was still benefiting from the missing money. Unfortunately, this could never be proven, and right up until today, the missing multi-millions remain missing. Both homes belonging to the Pretorius family were auctioned off with the contents inside. They fetched only a portion of their value, and the auctions themselves were strange events, with the crowd consisting of both those planning on bidding on the homes as well as investors who'd lost money and simply wanted to come and see what their money had likely purchased. One woman who'd invested close to 700,000 rand with Hermann and whose husband and daughter had also invested sat in the Hermanus home and spoke to a journalist. She said that she'd become friends with Hermann and his wife after investing with him for some time. She'd been invited to stay at the Hermanus home with the family on several occasions, and always marvelled at its beauty, wishing that one day she would also be able to afford something so lavish. She laughs harshly as she says that she now realises there's a very good chance she did pay for part of that home. And this was the deep pain of this case. Hermann Pretorius and whoever was working with him, if anyone, did not just steal people's money. Hermann befriended these people. He got them to trust him. He shared meals with them and invited them into his home. They, in turn, did the same. He ingratiated himself into their lives. They called him a friend. And all the while he knew, as he told that pastor friend years before his death, there was always a ticking clock behind the scenes. He was always going to hurt a lot of people one day, one way or another. The financial enormity of this case often masks the other crime that happened here. Julian Williams was murdered, and no one really seems to understand why that occurred. Investigations afterwards could not find any deep links between Hallman and Julian besides the SA Super Alloy shares. But something that was said to journalist Julius Corbett after Hallman's death could give us a clue. Some of Hallman's supporters sent emails and letters to Corbett essentially blaming his article for ruining Hadman's life and leading to his death. In the letters it became clear that these people believed that Julian Williams had been the source that had reported Hadman to the FSB and the source that had given Corbett information for his article. Both the FSB and Corbett denied this. Julian Williams had not been the whistleblower. But I can't help but wonder if Hermann Pretorius believed he was. Had Hermann convinced himself that his ex-business partner 
had been the person who'd lifted the lid on his bubbling pots of criminality. Did this belief, combined with Williams's refusal to use money from other funds to pay dividends, create the idea in Herman's mind that Williams was the cause of all his problems? Usually when a murder-suicide is committed, the murder victim is killed for one of two reasons in the perpetrator's mind. They either believe they are saving the person from something, or they believe they are avenging some wrong committed against them. It seems probable, at least, that the latter was the instigator in this case. Eleven years have passed since Herman Pretorius murdered Julian Williams and took his own life. And still, there are ongoing cases, inquiries and searches for missing money. None of the investors have been paid back any of their money, and it's very likely they never will be. Although the co-directors of Julian Williams' businesses said in the days after his murder that his death would have no impact on his various business dealings, this seems to have been more of a PR effort to stop the drop of share prices, because it would not be long until all of Williams's businesses no longer existed either. As I was researching this case, I tried to put myself in Herman Pretorius's shoes and wonder if, given the right circumstances, I could have gotten caught up in the circle of dirty money. And honestly, I don't think I could. I feel weird if I owe someone even a small amount of money, and it weighs on my mind until I've paid them back. I simply cannot fathom owing people almost two billion rand, and knowing that the money I had was not just disposable income they wouldn't miss, it was their entire livelihoods. I'm pretty sure Herman did not set out to get to the level he did, and I'm sure the lifestyle he found himself leading became a bit of a self-feeding monster. His investors expected the person guiding their finances to be successful. It instilled even further trust and reverence if their advisor was clearly successful beyond their own wildest dreams. So, the more Herman took from others, the more he had to appear successful, and that money had to come from somewhere. There was evidence that Herman actually was carrying out a few valid trades, but these were a drop in the ocean compared to the money that was simply being moved around in the Ponzi scheme. If the SA Super Alloys dividends hadn't failed to come through that year, he may well have made it through that investigation. Who knows? But everything happening at the same time brought the entire scheme to a screeching halt. And Harriman knew he had two choices. Face the music, the recrimination of thousands, the shame, and a prison sentence or end his life, and along with it, his responsibility. It may have been interesting to see what would have come out if Herman Pretorius had stood trial. There were rumours after his death about some relatively well-known people in financial circles having been involved in the scheme, and it seems that Herman may have essentially taken the fall for all of them because his death masked whatever lay beyond that. More than one billion rand does not just disappear into thin air without at least one person, and very likely more, actively working to cover the tracks. And so while Julian Williams's children grow up without a father, and thousands of people learn to live in a new financial reality, after working their entire lives for a comfortable retirement, someone out there is still benefiting. And more than a decade later, it seems very likely they've gotten away with it. 
to all the victims of Herman Petraeus' Ponzi scheme, I hope that at some point you've been able to make peace with this terrible crime. And I hope that you've come to realize that you are far more than your bank balance, even though you did not deserve this violation. Julian Williams, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 101, A Pyramid of Death. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.